We fail to put into words truly how worthy he is, church. As uh, Brother Pastor Nick mentioned, uh, we are having a new members class this afternoon, and it's been a couple years in the making that we wanted to really revamp that material. We've made minor changes here and there over the past few years, but it's been for at least, at least two years or so that we really had wanted to put in a lot of work to, to change it to be better representative of who we are as a church. And so if you've been through the membership class before, um, I know a lot of you have, if you would like a copy of the new material, just send me a text and I'll be happy to email to you uh, the, the new material that we're putting forth. I think it is a much better and clearer uh, picture of who we are as a First Family Church and our identity. So we'll be happy to send that to any of you. This morning, though, please open up to 2 Peter. We're going to be picking back up right where we left off last time, which means we're going to be beginning by starting to read at verse 3. And once again, for this morning, uh, we only have two verses to consider once again. So at this pace, it's a pretty good thing that this letter is only three chapters long. So what, I have, um, what we have in the text this morning is a start to a new section. It's a section on Christian godliness, on Christian piety, on holiness, on the necessity of our sanctification as believers, as people who are trusting in Christ, especially in light of the backdrop of the, the main purpose of this whole letter, which is the church's experience with apostasy. Uh, with, with false teachers who arise from within the church and then end up having others follow after them. So let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word this morning. So the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 3 in 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word and for the promises, the precious promises that are contained in it. To know, as the text says, that you have given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness is a great encouragement to us, Lord, and we ask that you would help us understand that and especially, Lord, to make sense of what this means to partake of the divine nature. We ask, Lord, for understanding that you would help us to pay attention well, that you would cause me to only speak what is true, Lord. We don't want to hear man's thoughts, man's ideas this day, Lord. We want to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would grant understanding and illumination that you might let Christ be exalted here in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So, that text that I just read begins this first section after the introduction in Peter's second letter. And this section of the letter is actually really reminiscent of how the Apostle Paul starts Ephesians chapter 1 as well. Uh, verse 1 through verse 11 here in 2 Peter is seven sentences in the English. In the ESV, it's seven sentences at least. But in the Greek, it's, it's one long sentence. And it's dealing with some very rich and theological, theologically heavy truths, just like Ephesians 1 is. I think in Ephesians 1, it's actually the first 14 sentences in English are, are one sentence in the Greek. And so 
Peter here, in this big one run-on sentence, he, he flows from those very profound epistolary greetings in the text in verse 1 and 2, and then he launches into this related thought that is setting up the rest of the book, beginning here at verse 3. As I mentioned uh, before we read the text, Peter is, is here and he's studying to make a case for Christian godliness and the grace that we need to ob obtain such a thing. And he's very pastoral in this method. Very pastoral and, and for two reasons really. First, verses 3 through 11 form something of like an opening sermon for the letter and his purpose for writing it even. Some people actually think, some commentators think, that verses 3 through 11 was actually part of a sermon that Peter preached at one point. Uh, perhaps even like the introduction to a sermon, and then he elaborated on these points throughout the rest of the sermon. But then he also included here, it's also included here in this letter because he feels that it's an important point that his audience needs to know. It certainly has, uh, 3 through 11, has that sort of sermonic feel to it. It's focused on Christ. It's compelling us to look to Christ and to know Him more. It exhorts us to action and warns us of neglecting biblical truth, the types of things that a Christian sermon should do. And like many good sermons, it has three points. And we'll look at those over the next uh, two sermons as well. The theme holds these verses the theme that holds these verses together is, again, the theme of Christian godliness. Godliness, uh, being more like God, imitating God, as the Apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians 5, growing to be more like Him in our thoughts, our affections, our attitudes, our behavior, growing in conformity to those communicable attributes that God shares with His image bearers. He's, he's teaching the importance of godliness here in this section. And there are several aspects that Peter unfolds for us. First, we have the power of godliness, and that's in verses 3 to 4. And then following that, in verses 5 through 7, we have the, the, the pattern for godliness. And then lastly, in 8 to 11, the purpose for godliness. Not, not the only purpose, but a purpose for godliness, especially in light of the the issue that's happening with his original audience where the, there are people, false teachers who have, come in, who have come in, they have apostatized from the faith, and they're leading people astray. He's even done some alliteration, right? I mean, three Ps, power, pattern, and purpose, all in light of godliness. Now, he didn't give those three Ps as the three points, but it fits with the outline that he does give, and it makes sense for a nice sermon outline. Now, just because Peter here has three points and he uses alliteration, does that make him a Baptist? I mean, that's the classic Baptist formulation for preaching sermons, right? If a Baptist can do that, a Baptist will do that with the text. It is certain. Well, of course not. You know, that doesn't make him a Baptist. The fact that he doesn't baptize babies, that's what would make him a Baptist. That's what I, I think he wouldn't baptize babies. <laughs> now, the apostle, of course, is not trying to show any denominational uh, favor here or anything like that. The denominations didn't even exist in the Apostle Peter's day. But he, he uses these, these points here, these, these three places to make the case for Christian godliness. And what he's doing, again, he's being very pastoral. He's laying out the needed perspective that his original audience needs in order to deal with the reason for the letter. Remember, we're calling this series Admonition Against Apostasy. Remember, I couldn't help doing the alliteration. In, in chapter 2, the apostle will start to expose that problem and deal specifically with it. And these things that he's writing about now, the, the power, the pattern, and the purpose of godliness, and the focus which that puts on Christ Jesus, is the very encouragements that the church needs to not be taken captured by false teachers and then led astray and led into apostasy. 
Now, when we think of apostasy, there's really two kinds of it. There's really two kinds of apostasy, if we're just thinking of it generally, uh, from a kind of a pulled back view. Now, both kinds hurt the heart of the church. We hate to see it when it happens. I, I think we could even say that it hurts the heart of Christ as well, according to his human nature. But it certainly doesn't surprise him like it does us, for he is true God. But apostasy, meaning at one point a person is following Jesus, they're professing faith, professing to be a disciple, but then for some reason that following comes to an end. That's simplistic, but still it's an accurate way of describing what apostasy is. It's a person who is professing to be a disciple, but then stops in some way or form. Now, the first kind of apostasy to think of is the sort that just abandons the faith completely. Uh, you might think of the sixth chapter in John's Gospel and what happened with a group of so-called disciples after the feeding of 5,000. Eventually, after some other events, the Lord Jesus teaches that the, the belief, that belief is the key to eternal life. And that belief is actually granted to an individual by the Father. It's verse 45 and 46. And then he goes on to explain how it is that if we are to be his disciples, we must eat his flesh and drink his blood if we are to have eternal life, which was a confusing statement for many. We could understand why, I think. But what he was doing, in other words, was pointing to the reality that salvation is for those who are in the new covenant with God. The new covenant, which is the covenant of grace revealed, the old covenant and that system of blessing for obedience never merited the blessing of eternal life. And so he's pointing them to the new covenant. The Lord's table is that sacrament that we do here at First Sunday Church at the first Sunday of every month in which we take the wine and the bread which represent his body and his blood. It's the sacrament of the new covenant. It's one of the sacraments of the new covenant. And so for many of his so-called disciples, after that discussion, they couldn't follow him any longer after that. And so John 6, 66 says, you might remember, after that many of his disciples turned away and they no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples turned away and no longer walked with him. That is apostasy. That is the first form of apostasy that I want us to think of. There's another sort of apostasy, which I think is a bit worse, actually. Again, both are greatly heartbreaking, and we, and we never like to see it. But there is another form of apostasy which is more damaging and much harder to deal with. There is a sort of apostasy in which a person stops following Christ, yet they believe themselves to still be following Christ. They stop following Jesus, yet they believe that they are in fact still following him. And Peter is actually building up this defense of the grace of godliness in light of that kind of apostasy. Turn over to chapter 2. It might be on the same page for you. For me, I have to turn. In 2 Peter, in verse 1, he mentions teachers who rise up from among them. Well, from among who? From among them, from among the church, from among the group of professing believers. And they lead people astray, we read secretly, so not blatantly, but secretly we read, with destructive heresies that deny Christ. They're still professing to be in the faith, but in reality, they're not even close. They have denied Christ. And listen, friends, you can't have even a single toe on the wide path that leads to destruction and think that you're still on the narrow path which leads to eternal life. As soon as you make some sort of provision for the flesh and embrace what the Bible calls sin as, and you start calling sin good and holy, then you're in danger of apostasy or you've already apostatized. 
We are either trusting Christ, the Christ revealed in the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and we are by grace through the faith that He supplies, resting in the comfort of justification and reconciliation that He provides, which produces in us a desire for godliness, not sinless perfection in this life, but a desire for godliness in which He sanctifies us as the evidence that we have been in fact born again and justified, or if we are trying to justify our sin and embrace our corruption and indulging our sinful desires without any guilt, without any repentance, then because we are justifying it, it shows then that we are in fact not following Christ. Even if you say you are following Christ, if that's how you're living, you're not in fact following Christ. Uh, there is a reason why the gate to eternal life in Matthew 7 is on the narrow way. It's because it's only enterable through Christ. The, that, that union that one has with him, his holy life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection and ascension. And when the way of truth is blasphemed and people are led astray in sensuality, which is what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 2, we can be sure that that is apostasy if they don't repent from whatever that specific deceitful sin is and the justifying of it at least. But this is why the Apostle Peter is writing, writing here in this letter. And let me assure you, friends, this is not just a first century problem. This sort of apostasy is characteristic of the age that we live in, this age, this time span in between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And we are presently seeing it happen in our culture with increasing intensity. Uh, mostly everyone, political, cultural, theological commentators, if we even want to put a division between those groups, between those categories, they will admit that we are living in a, what they would call a post-Christian nation these days. Could things change? Oh, absolutely they could. And we pray that they do, and we live in such a way that would be conducive to that change. But the so-called progressive progressive Christian or liberal Christian movement isn't showing any sign of slowing down. Young people who used to attend this church, uh, family members and friends of ours who once espoused the truth as it is in Christ are increasingly, for example, and this really is the battleground that this progressive Christianity movement is taking place on, they are increasingly believing that you can be gay and embrace those desires and still be a Christian. They are sympathetic and supportive of the transgender delusion and confusion that is sweeping our nation right now. Uh, you've, you've been understanding the Bible wrong, is what they say. Uh, inerrancy is a man-made doctrine, they will tell you. So-called pastors are changing their views on this topic. Don't forget, you know, we're a part of the SBC. I don't know for how long. I've been saying that for a few years. But the last two SBC presidents recently said that the Bible whispers about homosexuality. To be fair, Ed Lydon was plagiarizing J.D. Greer on a grand scale, but it's, it's still shocking. Not only does the Bible not whisper about homosexuality, it shouts about that sin and every other sin that mankind commits as well, too. Yet, this one sin is one that seems to get a pass. Now, today, it's not uncommon for a seminary graduates, uh, for masters of divinity holders, for Bible degree possessors, to embrace unorthodox views and call it right. And before you know it, if you don't budge, and instead you hold fast to a biblical morality and you cling to the Jesus that's revealed in scriptures, well then, according to them, you're the problem. And of course the world eats that up. <laughs> the world's been saying that since the fall anyways. Uh, you're, they'll, so they'll say that you're the one who's not being Christ-like and Christian. 
That's what we have happening today, and it's on an increasingly large scale. The people they lead astray think they're in the faith still, but they have abandoned the faith. The form of godliness that they profess to have is a lie. What they need is the godliness that Peter writes about here in chapter 1, here in these opening verses in 3 through 11. It's a sort of godliness that makes one's calling and election sure. And it's based on a specific knowledge and a specific power. So, so then let's look at verse 3. Let's start at the end of the verse and work back to the start of it. Who is the him in the phrase, the knowledge of him who called us? All right, who is the him there that he's speaking about? The flow of the sentence and its relation to the previous sentence demands actually that it's Jesus Christ. It's not the God the Father here at this point. It's Jesus Christ that he is speaking of. Jesus is the one who calls us. Jesus is the one who enables us to live the Christian life. He's the one who sends the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who regenerates us. And then because of the power that Jesus has given to us in that, we're able to live the Christian life. No one would have known better the attractive power of Jesus Christ than Peter, whose life was dominated by what he had heard and seen of the Lord. Remember, Peter spent a lot of time with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Peter himself was called by Jesus Christ. And a similar event is recorded about the rest of the apostles as well. Perhaps most famously was the calling of the Apostle Paul, who was on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute Christians. He wasn't looking for Christ at that time, but Christ sought him and he called him and he changed him. Peter's account is less dramatic, but the reality is that it's still just as fantastic. Matthew 4, 18-20 describes it. It says there that while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then verse 20, we read the response. After that calling, immediately they left their nets and followed him. They were called, and then immediately they follow. And the idea here in Peter mentioning this, that they're being called by Jesus with this mention of calling, is especially that of what we would call in theology the effectual call. It's a synonym for the doctrine of grace known as irresistible grace, which is concerned with how God saves us. So the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 10.1 says this about the effectual call. This is a definition for you. It says, in God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those who he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. <clears throat> he takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. And he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> so you see how the, the Baptists have historically described that. <coughs> They're not coerced in this effectual calling. It's they're made willing. It's effectual. It's when this call comes to you, it causes an effect. And in the gospel comes in power. Whose power? God's divine power. Jesus' divine power is what initially begins. Verse 3, <coughs> speaking of even, it comes with a power that always produces God's desired result, which in this case is regeneration. 
And then it says we're, we're called to his own glory and excellence, as Peter puts it at the end of verse 3. Divine, he mentions that at the beginning of verse 3, of course, but also glory are two words that belong to God. Hopefully, when we think of glory, we don't first think of man's glory. Man is nothing compared to the fact that God is glory, that he is glorious. And here, <coughs> excuse me, in 2 Peter 1, 3, they are being attributed to Jesus Christ, divinity and glory. It's one of the few times in the New Testament where Jesus is explicitly described as and called God. The first phrase, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, is Peter's opening argument. The false teachers were, by their example, undermining these Christians' commitment to living a godly life. That is, as we all know, you know, the godly life that Christ calls us to is a life that makes radical demands upon our thought, speech, and behavior. After all, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation in Christ. It doesn't get any more radical than new. From death to life, that's where God takes us. The ordinary Christian then, as well as now, can be severely tempted from time to time to think that God has simply asked too much of us. That the, that the Christian life is just literally impossibly difficult. Our struggle with sin has more than once led us to despair, I would think. It has for me at least. You know, how long, Lord, how long, Lord, must I deal with this temptation? How often must I overreact towards my children? How many times must I lose my patience with my wife and treat her without grace? A sin is not easy to overcome. It's impossible apart from Christ, really. And the false teachers were proposing an easier way, a relaxing of the high standards of behavior that the Lord taught with his apostles. And so Peter says, no, no, that is not what is the right thing to do. Christ gives us everything we need to be godly. We're not being asked the impossible here because with the law of God comes Christ's enablement. And this will be especially be clear when we get to the plan of godliness in the next section. Christ's enablement in the gospel is the only reason that we can pursue true godliness. And so it is throughout the Bible. Our moral failures are never chalked up to the fact that what is asked of us is too difficult, that the Christian life is simply beyond anyone's ability. Everything we require has been given to us pertaining to life and godliness. We read here in 2 Peter. Christ is with us by his Spirit to help us. All things, all things that pertain to life and godliness, not some things, not a few things, but all things necessary have been given to us. If we do not live this life, given the provisions that Christ has made for us, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And it's interesting, isn't it? We would have no one to blame but ourselves. And why? Because it is our power precisely that will fail in looking to attain godliness. If we're depending upon our own strength to be holy, to be godly, we won't do it. We will fail. We will sink in sin. But it is the power, the divine power of Christ Jesus that has been given to us. What greater thing could we ask for than that? There is nothing. Turn with me to, to Hebrews 1. Just a few turns to the left, it should be. I went too far myself. <clears throat> The author 
to the letter of the Hebrews writes concerning Jesus, and this is verse 3. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I try to think myself here. What is the greater act? This is an amazing verse, isn't it? What it tells us about Christ's power is it's humbling. It's awe-inspiring. For one, first we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That the person of Jesus expresses God's glory. There's no greater expression of God's glory than the God-man Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of His glory, the brightness of it, the beauty of it. And then, He's the exact imprint of His nature. In other words, He's eternal God. There is one God in three persons. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son, as the classic Trinitarian formula goes. And here, the author of the letter to the Hebrews explains in clear and plain language that Jesus and the Father are one. They have the same essence. Their being is of the same substance, the same usia in the Greek. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And here's where it gets really interesting for what we're thinking about now, as if that wasn't already enough. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The, the same power which Jesus, from Jesus, which grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness, is at the same time upholding the universe. It's great. It's impossible to fully comprehend. But here's where my mind gets put in knots even. The power to uphold the universe by his word is certainly great. But the power required to make purification for sin, and that's not even the context of power is speaking of here. But think of the power that was required to accomplish that. The power to undo the curse of God brought about by Adam to empty himself and take the form of a servant, as Philippians 2 says. Not to diminish his deity in any way in that, but to, as, a, as true man and true God, two natures in one person, he made purification for sins. He took an eternal weight of hell off his shoulders for every person who is trusting in Christ, for everyone who is chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. I'm inclined to think that a greater testimony of Christ's power then even upholding all the cosmos by his word is the fact that he made a purification for our sins. I'm not sure, but I think so. And nevertheless, that same power has been given to us for all things that pertain to life and godliness. If we are godly, we have no one to thank but Christ. There's no room to boast at all. If we aren't, we have no one to blame but ourselves. So there's, there's more in that phrase, through the knowledge of him, I'm still looking at verse 3, then we might grasp at first. He's alluding to something that he's also going to mention. I'm back in first, or Second Peter now. He's alluding to something that he will also mention in verse 4. The, the Greco-Roman world also taught a form of what is called theosis, which means participation in the life of God. But for the Greco-Roman culture, they weren't thinking of Christian categories when they talked about this partaking of divinity, this theosis. They weren't thinking within Christian constructs, like Peter, obviously, and certainly is. 
For them, one entered into participation in a variety of different ways depending upon one's school of thought. We understand, right, maybe you remember from history class that in the Greco-Roman world there was all these different schools of philosophy, these different schools of thought. Uh, one would be like esoteric knowledge. You know, these people, they felt that they, had, they understood secrets that others, others didn't. Others were very big about the pleasures of the flesh, which actually seems to be a feature of the teaching of the false teachers that Peter is having to deal with. Uh, there's religious rituals or whatever, depending upon the school of thought. But people of that time and place most certainly did not think that such participation in the divine would be obtained from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And who, for them, these Gentiles coming to the faith, some of them before coming to the faith, certainly just thought Jesus was this amateur Jewish rabbi. You know, the son of a carpenter who had been executed by the, the Roman state in Judea, one of the most despised parts in the Roman Empire in those days. Um, they would have had a tough time dealing with that. People today aren't caught up in Greco-Roman culture and philosophies, of course. Today, people just seem to be spiritual for the sake of being spiritual. I mean, you can't go more than a few miles today without running into like, some New Age crystal selling shop. They're, they're popping up everywhere. Uh, people are inclined to think that nearness to God, or maybe they just say the divine, that it is something that could be obtained through yoga or meditation or self-actualization or just even moral goodness, defined by them, of course. It has always been, and it is today precisely, it's the audacious claim of the gospel, is that what every human being is actually looking for the, this perfect life, to be a whole person, can only be found only in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's getting at that here. People are looking in all the wrong places. Uh, Puritan William Ames said, the highest good of people in this life cannot be obtained from good. Rather, our true and highest good consists in the union and communion we have with God. It's, it's the knowledge of Him, Christ who is God, of Christ that says, who these things are through. The knowledge of God is both theological and spiritual, Joel Beakey comments. It's a theological knowledge because it is, the knowledge is this, uh, it is knowledge of the objective content of God's self-revelation in Christ. And it's spiritual because it's given to us as a fruit of the Spirit who is working in us. And notice that Peter doesn't say that God gives us everything we want, but everything we need for life and godliness. It's a very different thing, isn't it? everything we need versus everything that we want. God is not our vending machine. It doesn't mean that we'll have perfect, problem-free kids. It doesn't mean that you know, I'm going to be able to dunk a basketball or that we'll all drive Porsches. Jesus gives us, through the knowledge of Him, all that we need for a life and godliness. And sometimes even, it is the withholding of those things that we want that contributes to us obtaining that life of, of godliness. In verse 4, Peter notes that the great and precious promises in Christ, which are to be godly, and with our union with him, are fulfilled in the lives of those who have escaped corruption of the world through Christ. And what's the source of the corruption in the world? What does it say in verse 4? It's our sinful desires. Peter repeats this almost identically in, in 2.20, but we'll look at that later. Now, let me begin with two observations before we get to this somewhat difficult but major point in the text. First, I want to 
I want you to observe the pattern at work here in Peter's discussion of the Christian life that is really characteristic in how, what the Bible teaches. He begins by reminding us what God has done for us in verses 3 through 4. It's the gospel first. In other words, good news first. Then in the following verses, he'll go on to tell us what we must do, how it is that we must respond to God's gift and make use of them. Peter makes God's gifts to us the ground for his appeal to us to live worthy of that grace and salvation. It's just like what even we see in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Those are cashed in light of their redemption from Egypt. First, it's the promise of God, the good thing that he has done for them. And then out of that, here's how you should live. It's the same thing that we've learned to expect from the Apostle Paul in his letters. Theology first, ethics always second. We are saved to do good works, to follow Christ in obedience and service, and it's never the other way around. If it's the other way around, you lose the gospel. We don't work to get right with God. We, we work, we do good things because we have been made right with God. And you'll find that paradigm literally everywhere where you look in the Word of God. God has given His grace to us, therefore it is ours to live in response to. Secondly, it's important for us 21st century Americans who are unfamiliar with the Greco-Roman social world in which Peter was working to appreciate Peter's choice of, of wording that he uses here. He derives it from the culture that he's addressing. Or to put it another way, Peter is teaching his Christian readers against the backdrop of their Greco-Roman culture. In the same way that a preacher today must also understand his audience, even his Christian audience, we must understand that we all are, are the product of our current culture. We can't escape that, friends, myself included. And so Peter must address them in terms that both catch their attention and make sense to them. Even if it's confusing to us, he's not really thinking about our context. How could he be? He's writing to a specific group of people, although the Lord certainly intended for us to have this as well. He's, he must make especially clear how a biblical worldview departs from that in which they were raised and which is still embraced by their neighbors. And so, for example, this phrase, divine power, is technically not biblical terminology. I mean, it is now because it's in the Bible. But for Peter, at his time, it wasn't that. What Peter is doing, he's doing apologetics. If we want to be good at apologetics, we have to know the culture that the people are living in so that we can talk to them in a way that they understand. In fact, this term that he uses here, it, it's its only appearance in the Bible. But it was common in the literature of, the, of its period. It was a standard term in Greek literature. And so the word translated as divine here, which is the word theosis in the Greek, it's much more common in Greek literature than it is in the Bible. The word for divine here, again, theosis in the Greek, it's only used three times in the Bible. Twice in this section, uh, once in verse 3, once in verse 4. And then also one other time in Acts 17, when the Apostle Paul is engaging the Greco-Roman philosophers at the Areopagus. Am I saying that right? I'm, that's, a, that's a hard word. Anyway, if, if we're going to do apologetics, if we're going to be able to defend the faith well, in other words, it helps understand our opponents, right? And so Peter is putting his teaching in terms familiar to his initial readers. But... He's reminding them that only Jesus Christ fulfills the actual meaning of these terms or ideas. What the whole culture was looking for could only be found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his divine power. That's it. They're, they're looking in the wrong places. But what does Peter mean when he says that we, be, that we may become partakers of the divine nature? Well, let me ask you this. You guys know who Athanasius is? 
Have you heard of that name before? His early church father. He, has, he makes a statement in a very important book called On the Incarnation. Uh, Athanasius, maybe, maybe you've seen the meme on the, on the internet during Christmas time where he, uh, where he punches Arius because Arius was a heretic who was denying the, um, the humanity of Christ. And so he punches him. I don't know if you've seen that meme at least, but that's who Athanasius, that's who Athanasius is, or at least he's rumored to have done that. So anyways, Athanasius in his, this important book that he writes on the Incarnation, uh, which is a book that helped the church to come to a right understanding of the fact that Jesus, the eternal son, took to himself a true human nature. He wrote in that book uh, this quote. This is what he says. He says, he, that is Jesus Christ, became man that we might become God. Athanasius, the great defender for biblical orthodoxy, who even punched a heretic in the face, we are told, said he, meaning Jesus, became man that we might become God. A statement like that makes us sit up and take notice, right? Are, are we not to believe in the absolute antithesis between God and man, between creator and creature, between the infinite and the finite? How can a mere man, even a saved man, even a perfect man become God? But then we find something similar in the writings of Augustine, a man who, again, we trust to be wise, thoughtful, and intelligent expositor of Scripture. And he said, God wishes not only to make us alive, but to deify us. Well, what does he mean? That we are actually going to become God? Is that not the kind of heretical garbage that we have come to expect from TV preachers nowadays? Some of you may remember this. It was about 10 years ago now, I think. A Creflo Dollar. Is that a name that maybe you've seen before? Is a TV preacher, Creflo Dollar. It's a weird name, especially because he's like a prosperity gospel preacher. He really is about those dollars. He's a word of faith impastor. He's a huge congregation in Atlanta. He was on TV. I don't know if he is anymore. I hope not. But in one sermon, he asked his congregation this question. He asked them, if horses get together, they produce what? And the congregation answered horses. And then he followed that similar question, substituting out horses for cats and dogs, and they answered right every time. And by now, the congregation knew in what way to answer when he asked this question. He says, so if the Godhead says, let us make man in our image, and everything produces after its own kind, what do they produce? And so the congregation just goes right ahead and says, oh, well, God's. To which Creflo Dollar replied, God's, little g, God's. And he says, you're not only human, only human part of you is the flesh that you're wearing. Which, by the way, is just a modern dualistic Gnosticism. It's an old heresy. That's not what Athanasius or Augustine, or that's not what Peter is meaning here. What Peter is meaning here when he says that we partake of the divine nature is not the same type of thing that a Mormon would think. How they teach that even Jesus was just a man before he eventually became a God, equal to the Father, and that we can all do likewise. Uh, the whole idea of something like that sounds alarming to our Protestant ears. It should be. Well, you may be aware also that the Eastern Orthodox uh, theology, that is the theology of the Coptics, like in Egypt, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, and so on and so on, they have this doctrine called theosis, or divinization. And it occupies an important place for them. It has to do with salvation, and that should throw red flags for us. Uh, the doctrine has often been criticized, especially by the Roman Catholics and by Protestants, quite sharply by Protestants. And in any case, as you can imagine, 2 Peter 1.4 plays an immense role in all those discussions. 
what on earth does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? And of course, Peter has already been speaking in light of the terminology of salvation, as we've already seen. Now, I personally have a number of issues with Eastern Orthodox theology. Generally speaking, I think we should treat them in the same way that we would treat our Roman Catholic uh, neighbors and friends and family with, um, as subjects of evangelism. But what they mean by theosis or divinization, for some of them, may not be as bad as it sounds. We have thought that by theosis, the Eastern Orthodox imagined that a man's very being could change and he would become God as God is God. In such a case, you know, of course, the creator-creature distinction would just be abolished, they would be obliterated, and that would be clear and rank heresy. But Robert Lethem, who is a professor of systematic theology at Westminster and Union Theological Seminary, has shed some helpful light on the topic. Lethem writes that theosis, or divinization, or in Eastern Orthodox thought, does not mean that we become God, or even gods, with a little g, like Creflo Dollar taught, or that our nature as human beings is changed into something else. Rather, theosis, which again is the same word in 2 Peter 1.4 and 1.3, Theosis is the orthodox term for what the Reformed theologians mean when they talk about regeneration, the new birth, sanctification, glorification, adoption, the entire work of God's grace by which we are made or remade after God's image. So in this sense, when Peter mentions theosis, he means nothing more but nothing less than what Jesus meant when he spoke of being born again or being born from above. What Paul meant when he described the Christian as the temple of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus and Paul meant when they said that a believer is in Christ. Or what Jesus meant when he said in John 14, 20 and 23, he said, that in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Now, I'm not trying to build a bridge to Eastern Orthodox or something like that this morning. But I do want us to understand them rightly so that we can point out places of disagreement. And especially, I want this phrase in 2 Peter 1.4 to make sense to us. Remember, we have the example of Jesus himself. He was and is eternal God with the Father and the Spirit. But he joined himself, his person, to a human nature, a true and authentic human nature. In his person, there now exists both God and man. And to be sure, his situation is utterly unique but it reminds us of how intimately man and godhood can coexist. And that is, as well, the biblical doctrine of our union with Christ. We are, Jesus said in his famous remarks at the beginning of John 15, actually in the vine, drawing our sustenance from him, able to bear fruit because we're united to the vine. That's what Peter is saying, the exact same thing, to escape the corruption of the world and its sinful desires. It is from Christ that we receive all that we need for life and godliness. As Christ's humanity participates in his deity, so in a lesser way, our humanity comes by grace to participate in his deity and that of the Father and the Spirit as well. And that's all that Athanasius and Augustine meant as well. They're not speaking of us actually taking a divine nature to ourselves, but that we are remade in the image of Christ. That's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. Remember how the Bible says that those who worship idols become like them, uh, dumb, blind, and helpless, Isaiah 44, right? Well, Peter, in an attempt to reach his audience here, is saying that those who worship the true God, and mind you, again, this is what they were wanting. They wanted to participate with the theosis. He says that those who worship the true God through the knowledge of Jesus Christ become actually like him. 
When we participate with the Holy Spirit, we become holy. When we, when we participate in the sinless Savior, our sins are taken away. When we participate in the omnipotent God, we receive power to live a godly life. When we participate in the eternal God, we obtain eternal life ourselves. That's what Peter is meaning. When Athanasius, who said, Jesus Christ became man that we might become God, goes on to explain what he means by partaking of the divine nature, that's, Athanasius says that exegeting 2 Peter 1.4, yes, 1.4, he uses terms that we're familiar with and that we rejoice in. Adoption, renewal, salvation, sanctification, grace, illumination, vivification. I think you get the point. Peter, nor the early church fathers, are saying here that we become little gods. No sound teacher in the history of the church has said that. Only the heretics have said that. What we have in 2 Peter 1, 3-4, then, is not only a particularly powerful and arresting statement, which especially had major influence in a Greco-Roman world, of our ingrafting into Christ, as, who is divine, as the children of God. Children of God, by the way, is another reminder of how powerfully the Bible joins us to God. We are His children. He is our Father, Christ is our brother, and we belong to the divine family. And so by grace, we take on the characteristics of the family. This is what Peter is talking about. This is the form of godliness that he's mentioning. This is already true of us, but it will become so much more the reality of our lives when our salvation is complete. And when we become fully, and not that we are, of course, obviously fully justified right now, but we will at one day, when Christ comes again, have a new body and this you know, and, or if we die first, our fallen nature will be fully uh, redeemed and made new in Christ. And so what we experience now, we will one day have fully and finally what we just have now in principle and partially, again, at the second coming of Christ. Even those who taught the Christian life this way never confused our humanity with God's deity. As Augustine put it, who taught salvation's purpose and its consummation in terms of this theosis sometimes, was careful to say in the city of God, for it is one thing to be God, another thing to be a partaker of God. We are partakers of God. That's what Peter is saying here. To be a partaker of God is simply to have union with Christ. To have union with Christ is to be saved. That's what Peter is going after here. And when you're saved... You have been given all that you need that pertains to a life and godliness. Now, with all that work behind us, with all the understanding of, of partakers of divine nature before us, um, so what? What's next? What's the application that we should take from this text? Well, the first thing to say is what I said early on. What Peter says here in verse 3 and 4 is the basis for the exhortation to grow in holiness in life the grace of God, and a likeness to Christ in the verses that follow. This idea that is, given to, that is given to us from Christ, that what Christ has done for us, given our participation in Him, given the resources that are now available to us because of our connection with the Lord Jesus, and given what we have to look forward to, we should be practicing our faith with a true zeal. Is there any of us in here today that thinks we are zealous enough for the Lord? The Lord, the point that Peter is saying here is that we have what we need from Christ to truly be zealous for him. We should be leaving no st stone unturned and seeking to put on Christ's life and making his life more and more our own to imitate him. We'll take up that exhortation next time, but we'll notice them together again together that the two go together. 
just as root and fruit, or as foundation in the building, as motive and action, or as the Puritan Walter Marshall puts it in his classic on the Christian life, he says, we must first receive the comforts of the gospel in order that we may be able to perform sincerely the duties of the law. In other words, if you have been saved here this morning, you have been given what you need to pursue holiness. So then let's pursue holiness. This morning, I want to consider more directly the actual prospect of what Peter describes as partaking of the divine nature. Uh, there was a lot of this kind of talk again in Peter's day in the Greco-Roman world. Interestingly, there's a lot of this kind of talk in our day, again, much more than there has been in previous centuries, at least in the West. Again, we're just so very spiritual these days. Uh, participation in the divine, of course, means very different things to different people. But it's striking how much this sort of spirituality has resurfaced in recent years in the Western world with things like pantheism and Wiccan doctrine and practices becoming somewhat acceptable in our day. Not to Christians, of course, but to the world. Well, it was much the same in Peter's day. Peter's language, as I've already noted, was taken from that world. What people were looking for then and what people are looking for now, it's always been the case, this has always been the case, is something better. You need to know this about your neighbors the people that you rub shoulders with at work. They want a richer, deeper life. They want more power over themselves and over the forces that shape their daily lives. Why do you think abortion is so popular today? It's clearly, it is clearly the murder of another human being, yet somehow many refuse to see that. Many, actually, many more are actually admitting that they see it now, and that's a testimony to the darkness and the evilness of our culture. But at some level, the reason why it's like that is because they are pursuing what they think is better. They want to be happier than they are. In various ways, they want to be better than they are. They want to, people want to feel fulfilled. They want to feel satisfied, complete, or whole. In a secular day like our own, people may have less expectation of living with the gods after death than the Greeks did. They may be less concerned with moral corruption and the purification of the soul than the Greeks were, though there's certainly some of that in modern forms of spirituality. Modern methods may tend to be more superficial and require less sacrifice than those did that were recommended by Greek philosophy and the mystery religions of the first century. But one only has to look up and observe the world around to see how much more it is that people want out of life, how conscious they are of how far short this life falls of their hopes and dreams. And so they seek money and they seek pleasure, of course. But for almost all people, whether they see this or not, these are just means to an end, not the actual end itself. They want wholeness, they want happiness, they want fulfillment in life. And to be honest, most people would take those things even if it required for them to be poor. People are crying out, and literally when they're at home, they're actually often crying for these things. I think about how even today the, the term snowflake describes a person, or there's safe places. People are extremely emotional because things are not the way they want them to be. This is why Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, a profile of the truly happy, satisfied, and fulfilled human person. Happiness. I'm speaking of the deeper sense of real fulfillment, a sense of personal wholeness as well as emotional joy. It's the great question facing human life. And there is so much woe and difficult in human life, so much failure, so much incompleteness, so much frustration, and looming over it all, our certain death, which we'd rather not even think about sometimes. And through all of it, every human being has this inbuilt longing to be happy, to be good, to be fulfilled. 
Uh, we can't help ourselves. We're made in God's image. There's a quote that's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but that is wrong, actually. It's not from Chesterton. It's actually by a man named Bruce Marshall. And he says this. He says, The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is actually looking for God. You understand what he means, I hope? He's looking for happiness, but God's not there. Of course not. He's, on, he's omnipresent, but he's not there in the sense that the brothel will fulfill this young man's desires. We don't find God by embracing sin. We are found by God in one way only, through Jesus Christ. The whole world is longing to be happy, and the tragedy of human life is precisely that it continues to look for it in the wrong places. If true and lasting happiness is to be found, it can only be found in one place. And the Lord Jesus knew this, and so he showed us in his teaching how we might find that happiness, the fulfillment of life, and the apostles did the same thing after him. And so you so have the great Christian preachers after him. The Puritan William Bates said, The universal principle of carnal persons is to be happy here. Their eyes are ever engaged upon and their desires ever thirsting after sensual satisfaction. Who will show us any good? And by consequence, their main care is to obtain and secure temporal things, the materials of their happiness. The supernatural principle of the saint is to please God and enjoy his favor. As men believe, they love, and as they love, they live. So when Peter uses the language of his contemporaries to say that what they are actually looking for, this partaking of the divine nature, having your life drawn up into the life of the gods, or as in Peter's case, the, the, the reality, the life of the one true and only living God, which of course would bring with it power and success and inner peace and fulfillment and joy, he is saying that Christ and only in Christ can people find what they're looking for. And that, that is to be both our message and our hope and our experience as Christians today. To be sure, and this is our problem, is it not? This is our problem with our gospel witness in our time. Well, we don't have the participation to the degree that we someday will. We only have the anticipation of it, the beginning of it. It doesn't feel like it, but again, we don't base our understanding on feelings. We base it off of what truth is and what the Bible says. So think with me, brothers and sisters, about what it will mean to partake of the divine nature as we will someday. I mean, imagine. We'll hardly be able to recognize ourselves, I think. Can you imagine what it will be like to have a perfectly pure heart? To be overwhelmed with love of God and love of others? You know from your own experience, some of you, that some of the highest, purest, most wonderful and memorable, delightful experiences in your life were those moments when you felt the power of love in, in your soul. Love for God, especially maybe at the moment when you truly understood your salvation. Love for your wife or for your husband, for your children. Think of your wedding day when you saw your bride coming down the aisle. I know that's something that another man could sympathize with the birth of your child, and the first time you looked in his or her eyes before they were, you know, keeping you up all night and spreading fecal matter everywhere. It, different. It's different. The love you had for your mom and your dad as a child before you became jaded by this world. I, I tried to take my kids out to breakfast on their birthday always. Recently I went out, um, where we go, Lumpy's with Nora. And so we're taking some selfies so I could send them back to Anna and one picture, she's just like sitting at me, gazing at me, like glowing. And it's so cute. And I'm like, I'm a horrible sinner. Like, what is she looking at? Like, I don't you know, deserve to be looked at like that. But I mean, there's that, she's not jaded by the world yet. You know? And there's that, that experience of love that we have. But those moments don't last forever. 
Your love, while still there, you know, it descends to a more familiar level. And you might you remember how wonderful that felt when your heart was soaring and you had that pure feeling, how you wish, thinking back on it, that you could always feel that way. But then think of the glory that Peter mentions here. That powerful, all-consuming beauty that is God himself and being overwhelmed with it as you and I will be when we finally see it and feel it when we are in his presence, free from sin. We've only had distant glimpses of it here in this, this time in our lives. The beauty of something that virtually takes your, bre- takes your breath away. But we, to live in awe, I mean, it must be extraordinarily wonderful. And that's what it means to partake of the divine nature. To live in awe of the majesty of God. Wonder and, and love vying for supremacy in our hearts all the day long. And power, divine power. How held back have our lives been because we couldn't manage to control ourselves as we should have, as we might have? We've choose to let the flesh reign often, as the apostle describes in Romans 7. But think of what it will be like to find ourselves at last in perfect control, our hearts and our bodies in willing submission to our highest, indeed, now our perfect desires, our perfect commitments, perfect convictions, when the perfect comes, as the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That is what it is to partake of the divine nature at its fullest realization. When our union with Christ at his second coming is realized to its fullest extent and we become how Christ is with no effects of the fall on our human nature. When illness can no longer wreak havoc on our bodies. When sin has no sway over us. When death has completely lost its sting. When we truly and finally have escaped the corruption in this world and our sinful desires, that is all because of our union with Christ, based on who Christ is and what he has done for us in the covenant of redemption. It makes us want to cry out, hallelujah, doesn't it? Hallelujah and praise to the Lord God Almighty. That is what it means to partake of the divine nature. And that is what Christ, through his divine power, is giving us and will give us completely someday. Nothing less than that. Think about that. Meditate upon that. Look forward to that. Realize that the divine life is already pulsing through your own life. Perhaps not to the degree that you wish it were, but it is already in you if you're united to Christ. And see, see if that does not grace you and strengthen you to follow hard after Christ, to bear your sorrows with patience, and to make greater and greater efforts to live worthy of the grace that you have received. Because you have received grace. And you have been justified. So let's pray. Father, you are so wonderful. And to think that we can partake of of your divine nature, that we can be your sons and daughters, that we can have every blessing in the heavenly places, is so wonderful to us, Lord. Forgive us, for we know that we don't think of it enough. We know that we aren't as zealous as we should be. But we're so thankful that our standing before you is not dependent upon our works, but it is fully dependent upon the righteousness of Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us grace so that that we may pursue godliness more, knowing that you have given to us the very power that we need. We know we have no excuses, God. We know that the only reason that we don't live godly and holy lives is because we prefer our flesh. And so we ask for pardon for our sins afresh, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us over to living for your glory's sake, even through the trials that we go through, God. We know that they are only momentary and temporary, and nothing can compare to the eternal weight of glory that you have stored up for us in Christ Jesus. To you be all glory and praise, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.